thank you for the ways that you are moving us forward. God, the, the future feels so uncertain. The present feels so, so shaky and crazy at times. But God, just as you say in your word, even the, Psalm 46 says that even when the kingdoms themselves totter, you utter your voice and the earth melts. And therefore, we can be still and know that you are God. I pray that you will breathe your peace upon our people. God, thank you for the ways that even though this is, uh, feels like a crazy season, you are with us and that you are guiding us and that you are leading us and that you are continuing to keep our eyes up toward you even in the midst of a, a tumultuous reality. Thank you for the ways that you are the bigger reality and that you are working in and through us, your people, to accomplish what you have here north of Boston. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, before I invite Pastor Matt up here to share the word with us, you know, we've been traveling through the book of Acts. And when we got to Acts 10 this week, we thought, my goodness, what a perfect passage to talk about all of the discussion of racism and racial injustice going on in our nation uh, right now. It almost seemed uh, divinely orchestrated that we would land right on Acts 10, right as our nation is talking about this. But I want to say that as a pastoral staff, that we have been wrestling personally with this issue of, of racism, trying to open our ears to understand. We've been reaching out and having personal conversations with different individuals, trying to understand experiences that are not like our own. And so as we've been trying to go out and understand and raise our own awareness for what is going on in our society, we've been also trying to say, Lord, despite all the voices that are shouting right now, all the different opinions, all the different hashtags, all these things, please, God, show us what you say. Will you speak to us? We want to hear your voice louder, more clearly than anything else. And so, as we open up God's Word to Acts 10 and discuss what is a, a topic of racism and prejudice that is not easy, that is uncomfortable, but is so necessary, I want to invite you to open your heart and, and simply say from the get-go, Lord, show me what you say. Not with this politician or this leader or that person. Show us what you say. And with that, I want to invite up Pastor Matt, um, who has a powerful word to share with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. If you're new to Trinity, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share with you this morning, but I'm also a little bit extra hyped up today, so I just want to put that out on the table right up front. Now, if you've been to Trinity for a while, you probably know that I'm a big Patriots fan. And with this whole pandemic going on, I know that a lot of us have not been able to process Tom Brady's move to Tampa Bay. So I'm sorry to bring this up. But I want to start off today by rewinding a couple years back to a time known as Deflategate. If you're not into sports, stick with me for just a minute here. In 2015, during a playoff game, right in the middle of the game, the footballs that the Patriots were playing with were tested. And they were found to be below the legal limit of inflation. So a scandal erupted and the Patriots were accused of cheating by deflating the footballs on purpose in order to get a better grip on the ball so it would be easier to throw it. 
But after these accusations started flying, other voices jumped in uh, to say that really actually cold weather can cause that kind of adjustment in air pressure, and this was just totally natural. There was nothing wrong. Lawyers and MIT professors got involved, and the whole thing got completely out of control. And it was one of those situations where people could look at the exact same thing, but have a completely different opinion about what really happened. And I remember seeing a survey on a sports website where they asked, do you believe Bill Belichick and Tom Brady when they say that they don't know how the footballs got deflated? And this map right here on the screen shows how people all over the country answered that question. And if you look in 44 out of the 50 states in America, people were very confident that they did not agree with this. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady were lying because, of course, they cheated. But if you notice the small part of the map in the top right that's blue, there's a section there where the majority of the people in the six states of New England did not think so. They believed Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. They were being honest. This was really just a weather problem. And the most interesting part was when this graph came out, I remember if you hovered over each state, it showed you the percentages. And it was something like 90 to 10% on each of these. It wasn't even close. So how could so many people, based only on the area they live in, have such strongly opposing views of what happened? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the answer is actually really pretty simple. Everybody was biased. The sports fans in New England loved Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. We saw them dominating year after year. We knew they were just so good, they didn't need to cheat to win a game like this. They were just better than the Colts. But everyone outside of New England was sick of watching their team lose to the Patriots for the last decade and a half. And they just knew the Patriots must be cheating. There is no way they could keep winning over and over again like this. So before anyone ever tested these footballs, the New England fans had a bias, a positive bias towards their home team, and the rest of the country had a negative bias against them. Whatever the real facts of the situation were, everyone was filtering them through their own biases. Now, unless you've been living off the grid for the last month or so, I think you might know where I'm going with this. Today we're going to be talking about biases and prejudice and racism, but before I go any further, I want to make one extremely important caveat. For at least the last couple of decades, America has been getting more and more politically divisive. And instead of thinking that we have some different values and different priorities, and that we need to wrestle through those and we have some different strategies to address our problems, Many of us start thinking that we are in the ultimate cosmic battle of good versus evil, and of course, whichever party I side with is clearly the good side of that equation. And because of this, many of us start to find part of our identity, even our sense of belonging to community, some of our purpose in life, things that we should find in Jesus, his kingdom, and his mission. We often find these things in whether we are conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. And because of this, we have a tendency to filter everything through our political biases. So when someone starts talking about a major topic in our country, instead of trying to listen and understand what they're saying, a lot of us are tempted to try to read between the lines. Is he too liberal? Is he too conservative? Is she on my side of this? Or should I tune her out or try to figure out how I'm going to prove her wrong? Now, I believe the Holy Spirit was at work months ago before any of what we see in our country was going on as we mapped out this series on the book of Acts. And it's no surprise to God that our passage today is going to speak directly to the issues of race, prejudice, and division that we're seeing talked about so much right now. 
But this topic gets politicized a lot. And I want you to know that we are not going to look at this as a political issue today. We're going to be looking at this as a biblical issue. What is God's heart in this, and how do we understand that through his word? And if you get tempted to filter this message through your political biases, whatever side they're on, I need you to know that what I care about is what Jesus thinks about this topic. And I want to follow him regardless of whether that leads me to agree with Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, the Green Party, or none of them at all. So having said all that, let's pray before we open up to Acts chapter 10 and dive in. Would you pray with me? God, on a topic like this, it can so easy, be so easy for us to just get our political filters on and read everything through that lens, but please strip that away for all of us. Uh, peel that back and help us to be guided and shaped by what your word says and what you want to share with us this morning. Lord, I ask that in what I share today, if there's anything that I just thought of my own that is not helpful, that is not from you, that people would find that easy to ignore and forget. But whatever you want to communicate through this, Lord, I ask that you would make that memorable and you would sear it into our minds and our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to open up to Acts chapter 10. You can open a Bible at home or you can follow, me along, follow along with me here on the screen. This is a long passage, so I'm going to jump around at a few parts, but I'll try to make sure you're able to keep up as we go. So starting in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Let's jump down to verse 9 at this point. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again, do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times, then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Now jump down with me to verse 19. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I have sent them. We're going to skip down to verse 28 now, but what happens between this is that Peter and the men with him take a trip, and they arrive at the house of Cornelius, who has gathered all his closest friends and family members to hear whatever this message is going to be. So at verse 28, Peter told them, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. At this point, Cornelius retells his vision so Peter will understand, and let's jump to verse 34. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. 
In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Peter goes on to share the gospel with them, explain it to them, invite them. And in verse 44, we're going to go there now for the end of this chapter. Verse 44, it says, Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Hopefully you were able to keep up with all the jumping around there. That's a very long passage. And actually, by the way that it has these retellings and repetitions in their writing style of that culture, this is one of the most emphasized parts of the book of Acts. And we're meant to see it as being highlighted, underlined, and put in bold. And on the surface, this passage looks like the conversion story of Cornelius and some of his friends and family. And in one sense, that's true. And that's a beautiful thing to see them hear about Jesus and come to follow him. But many Bible scholars have pointed out that the way this passage is written, it's more intent on showing us the conversion of Peter. Now, not his conversion to Christianity, he was already following Jesus, but the conversion of Peter from a man operating out of deeply ingrained racism who misunderstands the gospel because of this, to a man who, when challenged by God, surrenders himself and his prejudice and then invites a group of outsiders to join the growing family of Jesus. Now, I need to back up a little bit so that we can understand Peter's mindset and the general outlook of his society. Uh, Way back towards the beginning of the Bible in Leviticus chapter 11, there's a set of food laws that the Jewish people were meant to follow. And they were a symbolic reminder that they were called and set apart as a holy nation in order to be a light and blessing to the world, showing others the beauty of having an active relationship with God. But the sacred calling to represent that became a point of racial pride for the Israelites. They began thinking of it as favoritism. They became filled with nationalism. Instead of wanting to shine that light outside to the other nations around them, they started to despise those people or look down at them for eating the wrong things. Those who were not Jewish were considered Gentiles, and by Peter's time, no Jewish person would even go into the house of a Gentile or ever consider eating with them or associate with them in any way at all. In fact, if a Gentile woman suddenly went into labor and only a Jewish midwife was around, the Jewish midwife was forbidden from assisting her in childbirth so that she would not help to propagate Gentile scum. What's interesting is that some very similar laws from the Old Testament about avoiding animal carcasses made it so that if you associated and interacted with someone who was a tanner who worked with animal hides for a living, you would also be considered unclean. And in this passage, Peter is actually staying at the house of a tanner when this whole story happens. And we can't know for sure, but it makes you wonder, had Peter started to selectively apply these Old Testament laws, but blindly hold on to the ungodly racism he had developed on top of them? In verses 9 through 16, Peter has a vision where God challenges his racial prejudice by telling him to eat the things that he would have considered unclean. And we notice that God has to repeat this vision several times because Peter's first reaction is, no way, not going to happen. 
In verse 28, you can see Peter reminds the Gentiles that normally he wouldn't go into their house or, or he couldn't associate with them at all. And when we get to the end of this passage, we have to wonder, if God hadn't interrupted and sent his Holy Spirit upon these Gentiles, would Peter have even thought to lay his hands on them or pray for them to receive God's Spirit? And we didn't read this far, but when we get into the next chapter and Peter returns to Jerusalem, he gets criticized by his fellow believers for the way he was willing to interact with Cornelius and these Gentiles. Before God intervenes here, Peter is a man with deeply ingrained prejudice who is living in a culture of nationalistic racism. Now, as we turn to look at the prejudice and racism in our own culture today, I want to start off by saying that this is a complex topic, and I am by no means an expert on the subject. I only have one set of experiences when it comes to this, and I can't fully understand everyone else's experiences. So I'm just approaching this as someone who is trying to learn how God would lead us through all of this. We looked at why Peter's culture had such a pattern of racial prejudice, so I want to do the same thing for us. What leads to both individual prejudice and patterns of, race, patterns of racism that we see here in America? Well, first, from a scientific standpoint, uh, many studies have argued that we only have the capacity uh, to know about 200 to 300 people on any complex level. So after that, our brains naturally start trying to take a shortcut, and we stereotype and categorize people in order to try to understand more of the population around us. And when this gets mixed with our fallen and sinful nature, we often start to look at those who are different than us as with, with suspicion or as competition. And because we usually know so many people who are more like us, uh, we almost always see people of our own race in a more individualized way. But we tend to stereotype people of other races and assume that as a group they're much more similar to each other than our own group is. When doing this, we can have both what are called hostile and benevolent prejudices. Sometimes we stereotype groups of people, but we don't think it's a problem because we're saying something positive about them. I, I hate to repeat this, but for an example, um, you've probably heard someone say something like, black people are so athletic, or Asian Americans are so good at math. Now, that sounds nice, but can you imagine if someone came up to me and said, white people are so good at math? I'd be like, which white people? I mean, I know a lot of white people. Some of them are really good at math, but some of them are abysmal at math. We usually have too many close relationships with people of our own race to assume stereotypes like this, but we often don't know enough people of other races on a personal level, personal level to realize how superficial the ways we think about them are. And studies have shown that when we have benevolent prejudice, we're also more likely to have hostile prejudice too because it normalizes a pattern of categorizing and stereotyping entire groups of people. But switching angles here, our history in America also plays a massive role in all this, and this is not a surprise to anyone, I'm sure, but slavery began here before this country was even an independent nation and lasted for 250 years. After that, we had 100 years of Jim Crow laws and legal segregation, and now it's only been about 55 years since the civil rights era of the 1960s. Some of you listening have been alive longer than that. Some of you even worked your early careers while we still had legal segregation. To put this in perspective, about 86% of American history involved either slavery or legal segregation. 
And it's only the last 14% of our timeline where we've been free from this. But even so, that doesn't mean we're completely free from wide-ranging patterns of racial injustice. For decades after the civil rights era, with all other factors being equal, banks have been found to give out home loans favoring low-income white Americans over moderate or even high-income black Americans. In fact, you can find several banks that have had to settle multi-million dollar lawsuits in just the last couple of years over racist lending practices like this. Many of our cities have consistently and intentionally only invested in majority white areas and avoided investing in funding in areas with majority black or other minority populations, which has denied people of equal economic opportunities and factors into the poverty rates we see today. I shared this in our Trinity Live devotional about a week ago, but multiple, uh, multiple tests have confirmed that if you take a resume and you make two copies, and it has the exact same college, GPA, awards, and experience, and you just change the name so that one copy has a stereotypically white-sounding name and one copy has a stereotypically black-sounding name, and you send these out for real jobs, the white-sounding named resume will get twice as many calls for interviews. At adoption agencies throughout America, and this includes Christian adoption agencies, white babies cost up to twice as much in the fees they charge. And this is because the agencies know by experience that the majority of the people in our country have a bias against non-white babies, and they're trying to incentivize them to still consider adopting these other children. These patterns are all part of what's called systemic racism. We see individual prejudice when someone operates out of racist beliefs in a one-on-one -on -one interaction, but there are also patterns of prejudice woven throughout many sectors of our society. And if you look at the timeline of our history and how many of these patterns continue today, it should not be surprising how much racial injustice we still have to wrestle with now. But I need to share a graph at this point that I find deeply disturbing. This is a table that shows the results of a racial resentment survey among people of various belief systems and worldviews. The survey was done in 2018, so it's pretty recent, and essentially it asks people if they believe that there are patterns of racism in America that still negatively affect black people today. And if you look at the top line, you'll see that white evangelicals in America have the highest racial resentment score out of all the groups. That means that white evangelicals are the least likely group to believe that there are still patterns of racism contributing to racial injustice today. Now, as a point of clarification, in surveys like this, even though white and black Christians in America have very similar theology, black Christians are usually referred to as black Protestants rather than evangelicals. This is just something survey people have decided and they wanted to make a distinction. So often our theology lines up very closely, but because of our different experiences, our social views can be a bit different. And you can see this play out on the chart where white evangelicals are at the top with the least likely to believe this is happening, and black Protestants are at the bottom, the complete opposite ends of the spectrum here. Now, I know that Trinity is not just a white church. We have members and families who are black, Asian American, and Latino, and we are so thankful that this is a place where we can all come together and unite together in Christ. But we do have a majority of white people, so it's important for us to look at things like this. I had a conversation with Pastor Kirk and Pastor David a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how the church is meant to be the light of the world, reflecting Jesus and have a, having a transforming impact on the society around us. 
But we can't share the light of Jesus on a topic like this if we're lagging behind everybody else on it. And when I look at this, I have to question how much has changed since 60 years ago when Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail, and I'll paraphrase just for clarity, but he essentially said, the church has often accepted the status quo and acted as a taillight falling along behind after things begin to change rather than as a headlight leading men to higher levels of justice. Folks, I don't mean to sound accusatory here, this is not a survey of Trinity, but where do we want to be on this and what are we going to do about it? The Bible calls us to bear each other's burdens. And when I look at the difference between white evangelicals and black Protestants on this chart, it really doesn't look like we are bearing each other's burdens. Racial justice and racial reconciliation are both very close to the heart of God. So how can we follow his heart and move forward on this? Well, I want to start by looking back at our passage to see how God speaks directly to this kind of thing. Peter begins with a heart full of racism that for him and most of his culture had become natural, even equal with the biblical laws of God. But of course, this was a distortion. This is not where God's heart was ever at. So God sends a vision to Cornelius because in his love, God wants to share the grace of Jesus with Cornelius just like he did with Peter. And we can see how much God cares about breaking down these racial divisions in the amount of ways that he super, uh, supernaturally intervenes throughout the story. It starts out with he sends a vision to Cornelius. Then he sends a vision to Peter. Then he repeats the vision multiple times because Peter doesn't get it. Then he explicitly explains it and applies it for Peter. Then when Peter goes and shares with the Gentiles, he sends his Holy Spirit dramatically upon this group of people that Peter never would have expected to get invited into the family of Jesus. God wants to break down Peter's prejudice in order to build up his kingdom. Peter thought the gospel was only for people like him. Even at the beginning of Acts, when Jesus told the apostles to go out to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it seems as if they may have gotten confused and thought they'd only be looking for people like them in all those places. But God broke through this and declared that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God was at work erasing all of the divisions that Peter was used to living in. And this wasn't because God was suddenly changing. This kind of thing was actually already in the Old Testament, but it was just easy for Peter to filter out and to miss it because of the biases that he had. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, this passage is so foundational to who God's people are meant to be. It, it says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. That's your role. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham and his descendants were always meant to shine the light of their relationship with God to everyone around them. And later on, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the future impact of the gospel by saying, In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. When this prophecy was made, Egypt and Assyria were the sworn enemies of Israel. But this paints a different future and looks forward to when people from Egypt and, and Assyria and representing people from all over as well are united together because of Christ. But again, Peter had developed a filter of prejudice against outsiders 
So it was easy for him to completely miss this aspect of God's heart. When God speaks to Peter through a vision, Peter is reluctant at first, even resistant. But God cares too much about Peter and too much about breaking this barrier down that he doesn't let it go. Instead, God, in his relentless grace, he repeats this vision to Peter three times. And God is so committed to transforming Peter's heart that afterwards he speaks directly to him. That doesn't happen that often to most of us. But he speaks directly to him to be like, this is what I meant. Peter's confused, but he's open enough to listen. And he sets out on this trip to visit Cornelius. And in his openness to God, Peter starts to get it. In verse 28, we see that he remarks to Cornelius, this has been against our laws and traditions, but God has shown me not to think of you as impure or unclean. After Cornelius shares that he too had a vision from God, Peter recognizes that God sees them both as highly valuable, that God had this desire to reach out to both of them in his love. And Peter says, now I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism, and this message of Jesus is for everyone. Finally, after all of this, Peter and the men with him do something that would have been unthinkable to them just a couple days before. Now, this sounds minor to us, because we don't have the same cultural situation as them. But to stay over at the house of Cornelius, to eat with them for several days, that was unheard of. That was unbelievable to do. For his entire life up to this point, Peter would have avoided doing anything remotely like that. But he knew what it was like to be challenged by the love of Jesus before. So he had learned to let his heart open up when God called for growth and change. And God's immeasurable love is displayed in all of this as he takes the time to break down Peter's prejudice in order to build up his kingdom. I believe God wants to break down our prejudice as he continues to build up his kingdom today. And I believe God is calling us to join in with him to break down the racial injustices around us as well. But just like Peter, our hearts can miss God's heart on this. And there are a lot of reasons that we can minimize or ignore the injustices that happen around us. For many of us, the patterns of racism don't affect us personally, and we don't have an experience with them. And because it's not our experience, we can be quick to dismiss that this is a reality that other people are living in. Thinking just within the family of Jesus right now, when we hear many of our black Christian brothers and sisters speak out about these things, do we think they're making it up? Do we think they're not as smart as us so they just don't see what's going on accurately? Or do we just not listen at all? Another obstacle many of us have is that we're so influenced by an individualistic culture that we aren't able to see that there's a systemic nature to some of these injustices as well. Now, I won't rehash all of the Trinity Live segment I did a week ago, but our hyper-individualistic culture has influenced us to filter the Bible. And we often don't realize that God's Word emphasizes corporate sin and corporate responsibility and corporate reform right alongside of individual repentance and individual transformation. And finally, sometimes we miss God's heart in this just because it makes us uncomfortable, and so we push it aside. It may be helpful to know that white people as the majority race and people of color as minorities generally, and this is a generalization, but generally feel very different about discussing race. White people often feel like it's inappropriate or unhelpful to talk about race at all. It makes us feel uncomfortable or maybe defensive. We often perceive this to mean that it's divisive and that we should all strive to be colorblind. 
But those who make up minority races, and again, not everyone, but many quite often feel valued and cared for when we're willing to talk about issues of race. Because even if it seems incidental to us, it's an experience that they feel the significance of on a day-to-day -day basis because they're a minority. This difference leads to a very destructive interaction when people of color try to bring up issues of racial injustice in order to work towards a better future, but then many of us respond defensively and criticize them for causing division. We promote being colorblind as the solution because it sounds like the right way to avoid stereotypes and prejudice, but it actually leads us to ignore that there may be differences in our experience and to silence those who are trying to address injustice. And on this note, I want to share one more excerpt from that letter from a Birmingham jail. And again, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this in 1963, but you could apply this today. He writes, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Pastor Kirk described this idea recently as the difference between trying to hold on to a superficial peace and being a real peacemaker. When injustice is exposed, this is not a disruption to peace, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's instead an opportunity to work towards genuine reconciliation. Just as 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We could not be reconciled to God without Christ's atonement on our behalf, without Jesus sacrificing himself as the answer of both love and justice, there would be no reconciliation. And in the same way, we cannot have real racial reconciliation if we want to ignore the injustices instead of resolve them. I believe that God is speaking to us just like he spoke to Peter. We may even be reluctant or resistant at first too. But God cares too much to only try to tell us this once, and he will keep bringing it up over and over again. Peter was given this challenging vision three times so that he could begin to open up and listen for God's leading. And I can't help but notice that we now have had three major interruptions to challenge racism in the history of America. The first was when slavery was abolished, but then segregation replaced it. The next was when segregation was overturned, but then the biases that it had bred continued. We are hearing this challenge for a third time in America right now. And I believe this is a sign of how relentlessly God pursues us, how deeply he cares about justice, and how much he is committed to our growth. God still wants to keep breaking down our prejudice in order to keep building up his kingdom today. So how can we open up our hearts like Peter and accept God's invitation to change? First, it's important to ask ourselves, if we don't want to engage in this topic, why is that? Are we feeling superior or defensive? Do our biases cause us to miss the problems? Are we trying to hide from feeling uncomfortable, ashamed, or guilty? Are we afraid of saying or doing something wrong or offensive? So we just check out instead. Whatever it may be, it's important to remember that God calls us to change because he loves us. His goal is not to overwhelm us with shame and guilt. It is important to always 
be ready to admit that we as individuals and as a society are broken. But God is inviting us out of that. He has already offered us forgiveness and freedom in Christ, and he is inviting us to continue that same posture we accepted Jesus with so that he can continue to transform us into his image. So if we're ready to open our hearts and ready to act on this challenge of God, just like Peter did, what can we do? I want to leave you with two invitations today. First, we need to work to listen to those who do not look like us or don't share the same experiences as us. And I say work because this is going to be hard. We are going to have to actively struggle to listen, understand, and try to learn from people who have a very different perspective than us. And I need to clarify that real genuine listening means our hearts are open to change. It does not mean preparing our responses or getting ready for a debate. And it definitely does not mean scrolling past hundreds of voices of our brothers and sisters in Christ online until we can find one or two that affirm what we already thought and feel justified. Listening like this is best done in a growing relationship. So if we are able, if we have the opportunities, depending on where we live and work and who we know, it is so important to be proactive about developing real relationships where we need each other, care about each other, and rely on each other across our differences of culture and background. And second, we need to commit from the start to caring about what God cares about, no matter where that will lead us. And that means we can't just settle for not being racist, but we need to be willing to take the next step and work against any and all patterns of injustice that we find around us. What we're seeing in our nation right now may feel like a lot. What you've heard today may feel like a lot for some of you. But none of this is too much for God. In this story, in Acts chapter 10, God breaks through racial divisions that had been building up for 1,500 years, 1,500 years, and he tears them down in the name of Jesus. I believe that God is ready to do that again. And the only question is, do we want to join in with him on that or let him do it without us? God wants to break down whatever prejudice we may have, and he's calling us to break down any patterns of injustice around us too because he's still building up his kingdom today right here in our midst. Let's pray. God, we may be feeling a lot of different things after hearing this, but, but the thing I ask the most is that we would be pierced by your word, that we would hear your heart through it, that we would see what you care about, what matters to you, what is in your character, and we would remember, Lord, that to follow you means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. God, please open our hearts, soften us, help us to remember that our entire relationship with you is a journey of growth and change. Lord, let us be bold enough to be able to face where we need to see that in ourselves and where we need to work against that in our society. God, and we just ask that we would be united together in this and led by you as we join in on this. We pray in Jesus' name.